I'd like to turn your attention this morning back to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. This morning I'd like to look at verses 3 and 4. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Jesus, after sitting on the side of a mountain, says, Open his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So we mentioned last week, this is the first full recorded message of the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. There's a number of times that Jesus uh, preached the gospel and preached various aspects of the doctrine of salvation and also uh, redemption and also judgment that would come. However, in this very initial message that the Lord Jesus preaches, as we mentioned last week, it's almost like this is his declaration of the kingdom of heaven. Um, it says in the chapter before that as he went forth, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. And as he did so, he also healed all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So as he gathers now here, after seeing this multitude, he assembles them together, sets down, and then he begins to preach to them in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, these three chapters are called the Sermon on the Mount. Here in the first uh, few verses, we have what are often referred to as the Beatitudes, which means the blessings. As we mentioned last week, the word blessed here, uh, the Greek word, literally the definition is very simple. It just means happy. Now this happiness that the Lord is speaking of is not an earthly happiness. It's not a sensual happiness. It's not an evil happiness. It's a happiness that can only come from heaven. It can only come from the blessing of God. There's a lot of people in this world that are feeling empty, that are feeling lost, that feel a longing for something, that they're seeking many different things to fill that emptiness or that loss or that void that's in their life. And I trust that you have found, and I know that I have found, that through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and my life in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus here in this world, that void and that emptiness has been taken away. It has been filled by the Lord Jesus, by the presence of his spirit, and also by the assurance of the gospel message. In fact, he would say, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. As we look at the Beatitudes over the next uh, few weeks, I don't know how many we'll look at each message, but today I just want to look at these two. They very closely are linked together. But I want to notice, first of all, it says, blessed are. Not blessed will be. This is present tense. So the child of God who is poor in spirit is already a blessed individual. Now that doesn't mean we'll always recognize it. Uh, but it is a blessing to be poor in spirit. <laughs> Brother Chris, that doesn't sound like a blessing. Well, when we understand it, there's really two ways that we approach to God. We either come before him poor in spirit or exalted in spirit. Yet, when it comes to spiritual things, we understand or should that we're completely bankrupt and completely helpless apart from him. That you and I have nothing of a spiritual nature that we own 
that could, first of all, make us happy, but secondly, that would ever make God happy. And so when we recognize that we come before him with absolutely nothing at all of ourselves, but yet in him we have great riches. As Paul would tell the church at Corinth, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So you and I have a wealth in Christ that... Uh, goes far beyond the wealth of this nation. I don't care. I don't know who's the wealthiest person right now. I know that position keeps changing. Some days it's Elon Musk. Some days it's the fellow that owns Amazon. What's his name? Jeff Bezos or Bezos. I mean, uh, used to be the man that ran uh, um, uh, Apple, whatever his name was, Steve Jobs. They would look at him. They would look at the man that ran Microsoft. Back years before that, it'd be Rockefeller, it'd be Vanderbilt, all these men always jockeying to be the wealthiest men on the face of the earth. And, of course, when they breathe out their last, what wealth did that matter? Or what did that wealth matter? It mattered nothing. It didn't put them in any better position. I suspect that most graves that were dug for those men would be about the same size as the one dug for me. They may have a nicer uh, monument on top of it, but they're still in the ground just the same. So... Uh, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor in this world really is immaterial, but that's not what Jesus is speaking of. Again, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are individuals that recognize that they are bankrupt. They have nothing to offer the Lord Jesus Christ in a spiritual way. And that's where you and I are apart from the help of the Spirit of God, that without his aid, without his assistance, without him granting something to us, that's where we stand, and that's where we would stay. But again, he says, blessed are, not blessed will be, but blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice he says, for theirs is, not will be, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now later, he'll let us know that there's some things that we're blessed in presently, and there's some blessings that shall be. Uh, for instance, when he says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That doesn't necessarily mean that the comfort's going to come right in this moment. It may or it may not. There's been times in my experience that the comfort that I needed came immediately. And there's times that it kind of held off a bit. But here in the very first thing that Jesus says, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think about that for a moment. So here he says, we're poor in spirit. We have absolutely nothing that would be appreciated by God that we could offer to him. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we possess. There's nothing in our nature. There's nothing that we own. There's nothing that we could purchase. There's nothing absolutely that we could do to present ourselves before God to increase our statute or our standing before him. Our excuse me, our stature standing before him. It's just impossible. But Jesus says we are blessed or we should be happy even though we're poor in spirit. Why? Because already ours is the kingdom of heaven. Think about the wealth and the power, the prestige of many of the kingdoms upon the face of this earth, even presently. And then as you consider past kingdoms, I mean, as you go down through the uh, lineage of history and see how kingdoms have uh, risen and they have fallen, there have been mighty, mighty nations that have existed upon the face of the earth. In the days of the book of Genesis, you find the nation of Egypt was a most powerful nation. Uh, there were also, after that, the nation of the Babylonians. It was a very powerful nation as well. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible says of him that when he walked, the earth trembled. 
There was such fear of that man and also such reverence and awe of that man that when he moved, the entire world paid attention uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. After him, of course, you have the Medo-Persian Empire. Then you have the Roman Empire. Then you would have the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire. You have the Greeks in there. There's all sorts of uh, mighty nations that have risen and yet they are no more. Uh, you have our nation right now that has been the glory of the earth for over 200 years. But as it appears that right now, at least to me, we're in a decline and may very well be that our nation uh, ceases to exist at some point. And if so, so be it. But uh, I would hope that it waits until uh, my departure from this world. But if not, the Lord will take care of his people. In the rise and fall of kingdoms, the saints of God have been provided for and they've been taken care of. And here's why, because we belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. Uh, you and I, even though we may be poor in spirit, that we have nothing in and of ourselves that we can present before God that would appease Him or uh, please Him anyway. Uh, thank God that through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, He's made us heirs of heaven itself. And even though we may be uh, bankrupt in this world, uh, you may own absolutely nothing in this world, yet you are a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, according to what Jesus says and in His opening sermon out of the saints of God, He says, here you are uh, blessed even though you're poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of heaven. It presently belongs to you. Uh, it's not something that you have to wait for. I'm thankful that as the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it lets us know that it has many facets, many aspects to it. In fact, the kingdom of God is one of the most uh, interesting subjects in the word of God. And it has to be rightly divided. Uh, number one, the Bible lets us know that the kingdom of heaven is within us. But you and I are also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, the visible aspect of the kingdom of heaven. You have the kingdom of heaven that's in heaven right now where the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns over this kingdom is seated uh, firmly and securely in His throne of power and dominion. Uh, one day we're going to see uh, the united triumphant kingdom of God uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Uh, but all of it, whether you're uh, a member of the kingdom of God right now as the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ, or even those who have never been baptized but you belong to the Lord Jesus, you still are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now I would encourage you to become a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and take up uh, your cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and make it public to all in this world uh, that you belong to the, uh, to the kingdom of heaven, that you are a citizen of the king and not be ashamed of that reality. You are whether you want to admit it or not, whether you want to show others that or not. It's the reality of your position in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to look at that phrase for just a few moments. Poor in spirit. In Psalm 51, and for those who know the background of Psalm 51, you know that David is writing this psalm at most likely the lowest point of his experience here on earth. David had had hard, difficult times before. He had, flee, had to flee his home, had to flee his wife was in danger at all times. David would say in his youth when Saul was pursuing him, he says, there's nothing but a step between me and death. Now, we all know that, I trust, that there's just one heartbeat or one breath between us and death. I think we all know that, but David felt it acutely because there was an army pursuing him. 
In fact, sometimes it took an invading army of another nation to come into Jerusalem, into Judea to distract Saul long enough for David to find an escape. More than one occasion, David found himself in a dark cave with the very man that wanted to take his life. And yet God preserved him. Those were lonely times. Those were difficult times. Then we find in 1 Samuel chapter 30 as uh, David is on the run, uh, they go out to battle. And then you find that uh, the enemy comes and takes his family and all the uh, belongings that he has. But not only that, there were 600 men that were faithful men. They were mighty men of valor uh, that went with David. And they lost their wives and all their belongings and their children as well. And so when they come back from the battle and they find that their encampment had been broken up and their uh, wives and children had been carried off, they didn't know whether they were dead or alive, whether they'd ever see them again. Uh, then the men spake of stoning David uh, because David was the leader who had brought them out of this situation. And the Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. 1 Samuel 30 verse 6. And he beseeched the Lord as he called for the ephod and asked if uh, God would bless him uh, to go out after the enemy and whether he would secure uh, that which belonged to him and his men. And God affirmed to him that yes, he was to go out and yes, he would secure all that belonged to him and his men. And his men went out, they pursued, and they overtook the enemy through the help and blessing of God and took back everything that belonged to them. And not one child and not one spouse of any of those men had been harmed by the enemy because of the providence hand of a merciful God but in Psalm 51 David finds himself at the lowest point of his life you say how could he be lower than in the moment when his children and his wife were gone because in Psalm 51 David has sinned greatly against God David who had been blessed by the hand of God mightily uh, God who had uh, showered this man with mercy upon mercy and blessing upon blessing had taken all of that in a moment and uh, mistreated it and uh, maligned everything that God had ever done for him. In fact, as Nathan would come and uh, let David know about the very sin that he had committed, David thought when he sinned with Bathsheba that nobody knew about it. And then when he thought that when he had uh, Uriah put to death out in the battlefield, nobody knew about it. But God knew. And always remember, whether you're doing a sin in secret, God always knows and God always sees. And don't think that your sin, even if it's a secret sin that only you and God know about, don't think that it won't impact others in your life. It will. It does. Uh, the Bible says that evil communications corrupt good manners and that's what happens. Sin spreads. That's the very nature of sin is to spread in other aspects of our life and to impact those uh, that we love. That's what happens here in David's case. He is sinning with Bathsheba. He's committing adultery with another man's wife. And to cover it up, he brings Uriah home from the battlefield and sends Uriah to his house, hoping that Uriah would lay with his wife. And in so doing, it would be assumed that the child that she is carrying uh, would be thought to belong to Uriah. Uriah, though, was not even an Israelite. Here he is, a Gentile man that loves the kingdom of God here on the earth at that time, Israel, and loves the king over Israel so much and his uh, fellow soldiers that are out in the battlefield. He will not go into the comfort of his wife, but rather he just sleeps in the gate of the door of the king's house. He won't even go see his wife, much less go and spend the night with her. And the next morning it's learned that he didn't go home and David has to come up with a plan uh, to cover up the sin. And of course he writes a letter uh, to Joab, the captain of the king's host, the general out there in the army. 
And he sends it by the hand of Uriah. Here's the faithfulness of Uriah. He doesn't even open up the letter. Of course, it's got the king's seal and wax. And he uh, doesn't open up. And he doesn't realize that what he's carrying is his own death warrant. That King David, that this man has pledged allegiance to. And to this nation that he's pledged allegiance to. That it's not even uh, of his race or his nation yet. He was willing to die for this nation. And here he is carrying in his hand uh, the very letter that would command Joab to put him in the worst part of the battle. And then when he's out there at the front of the heat of the battle. Then to withdraw the entire army and leave him there all by himself. I mean, imagine the wickedness of the heart of David at this moment. This man who is a man after God's own heart. The sweet psalmist of Israel despised this man so much and wanted his sin covered up so badly that in the worst part of warfare, he would tell the entire army, you just back away and you leave him there all by himself. Thank God that you'll never be in that position. The Lord Jesus Christ will never allow you to be out there in the snare of Satan all alone. (laughs) When the hottest part of the battle comes and maybe all the rest of the children of God back away, don't worry, Jesus will never back away. When Stephen was there giving defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and they took up stones to stone him, remember what Jesus did for that man. He opened heaven. And allowed Stephen to look into it and he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul said of my first answer, no man stood me, stood with me, but all men forsook me. He says, but the Lord stood with me. He says, and by me, and by my mouth was the preaching made known to the Gentiles. Why? Because the Lord stood with me. I would hope that I would never get to a point in my life that I was so desperate to cover up a sin that I would cause the death of another. But if David could get to this spot, don't think we couldn't. David was a good man. David was a great man. David was a godly man. He was a faithful man. He was a committed man. But even the best of men are just men at best. David would say, and he knew by experience in Psalm 37, he says, man at his best state is altogether vanity. What does that word mean? It means worthlessness. David the king over Israel, he says, man at his best state, he knew it by experience. So now here he is, he's put a man to death. Now, he thinks he's gotten by with it, but the Lord is not going to let this slide by. The Lord is not going to just allow this to go on and nothing happen to David. God is a God of justice and God is a God of righteousness. And God is not going to just sweep what we do wrong under the rug. And we should never uh, think that he will. But also always remember that God is very compassionate towards those who are willing to uh, just confess what we've done and confess who we are. He already knows it anyway, but in 2 Samuel chapter 12, as Nathan comes and tells David about all that he has done, it says in verse 7 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says, Nathan said to David, Thou art the man, meaning the man who's put to death Uriah. He, of course, had given that parable about a rich man who had plenty and a poor man who didn't, and the poor man had a visitor. Excuse me, the rich man had a visitor, and instead of taking of his own flock, he took the one ewe lamb of this poor man 
and fed it to his visitor. And David, as he hears this, of course, is very angry. And rightfully so. But notice Nathan says to David, thou, you're the man, David, thou art the man. He says, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. He said, and if that had been too little, I would have moreover have given unto thee such and such things. He says, David, I gave you the kingdom. I gave you the wives of Saul. I gave you not only Israel, but Judah. I brought the nation back together for you. I have blessed you to be firmly ensconced in the, uh, the throne of Israel. I did that for you, David. That didn't happen accidentally. That didn't happen by your might or your wit. That happened by the mercy and the power of God in your life. He says, I did all of this and I would moreover have given unto these such. And in other words, if you would have just asked, I would have given. He says, wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. And then, of course, the Lord lets him know that the sword will never depart from his house. So David is grieving. Some say, well, it's because he's caught. Sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes when we think in the lonely darkness of our lives that nobody but us, we, only we know what we've done. The Lord is able, and sometimes he'll do like a Nathan and send them into your life and let them know what's going on. Give somebody some insight into what's happening in your life and they may come to you and approach you about it. And sometimes the Lord just in the lonely hours of the night comes and speaks himself. But in David's case, he sends Nathan and David, as you read Psalm 51, is truly sorry. Not just that he's caught. It took the Lord sending Nathan for David to realize how bad he really had done. And sometimes that's what we need. We need the Lord to point out to us how dreadful we are. In our nature, we want to believe that we're far better than what we are, far above what we are. It's just our nature to want to cover over the, uh, the wrong of our lives and the shortcomings of our lives. It's just our nature to want to do that. But here in Psalm 51, notice what David says in verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. He says, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. <laughs> that word despise means that God will not ignore this. That God will not just uh, put this aside. He will not find this offensive in other words. So here David says the sacrifices of God. Meaning the sacrifices that God is pleased with. But also that God must provoke within us. See there's sorrow of the world Paul says that works death. But there's also godly sorrow. That means sorrow that comes from God. That worketh repentance and that's what David is experiencing right now. So he confesses to God and he makes this declaration. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. He says, God, thou wilt not despise. So when the Lord says in Matthew 5 verse 4, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. David learned that by experience. 
He says, God, the sacrifices that you respect are a broken and a contrite heart. I know you will not despise that. That's encouraging to me because there's been times in my life that I have been broken and I felt contrite. And I'm thankful for what David has here recorded that God will not despise that. That God will not find that contemptible. You know, if you came before many in this world who don't give the first care about godly things and you poured out your soul uh, before them, uh, you might move them and you may not. I mean, there in the Gospel of Luke, when that uh, widow came before the unjust judge, it said he didn't regard men and he didn't fear God. Here's an old widow woman who has an enemy that comes against her. And she goes before the unjust judge. Every single day she goes before him and just perpetually brings her cause to, was he ever moved uh, by this broken woman and this contrite woman? Not at all. That's not what moved that man. What finally moved him is he thought, you know what, the people of this community are going to finally think that I'm inept at my job and I'm tired of her bothering me anyway. And so he gave her what she wanted just so that she would hush up and leave him alone. There's a lot of folks in this world, you could bring your case before them and they might be moved with pity. They might have a great deal of compassion. They may even try to help to the best of their ability, but they can never reach where God can reach. They can never touch what God can touch. Again, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. In Psalm 102, verse 17, David says that God regardeth the prayer of the destitute. And God regardeth the prayer of the destitute. If there's anything I can say that I am, I'm destitute. You say, well, Brother Chris, you've been blessed, you uh, have a, a good family, a, a nice home. Yeah, I understand all that. I'm not talking about those kind of belongings. That apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, I know that I'm destitute. But also I know that David says in Psalm 102 that God regards the prayer of the destitute. That's encouraging to me. Because there's one thing I know that I am, that I am poverty stricken when it comes to things pertaining to God. And without his help and aid, there's nothing that I could do. But here David uh, proclaims to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God regards. That means God's respect. God hears. God uh, responds. God is moved by the prayer of the destitute. And he says, and their prayer he will not despise. <laughs> you know that publican, excuse me, that... Uh, Pharisee that came up at the same time as the publican to the temple to pray. God had no regard for his prayer. God, in fact, despised his prayer. That man came before God and tried to tell God how, <laughs> how God ought to be so happy that God had this man serving him. Basically is what he was going on about. And yet that publican who felt so broken in his life, who felt to be poor in spirit. He smote his breast, would not lift up his eyes to heaven, stood afar off, and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just a very short prayer. And what did David say? God regarded the prayer of the destitute and their prayer. He will not despise. 
And the Bible lets us know that that man went down to his house justified. That man felt uh, uh, the healing power of the blood of the Son of God as he went away from the house of God that day. I will tell you that prayer and confession to God of the things that do, we do wrong are a very effective uh, tool in uh, bringing us back near to God. In fact, it's the only way you can come back near to God after that you have sinned against Him. Uh, the Bible tells us in the, excuse me, in the writings of, of John in the epistles that when you and I, when we confess our sins uh, before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is faithful and He is just. That means He will do it and He's right to do it. He says He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to, and clean, and to cleanse us excuse me, from all unrighteousness. That's what happened for that publican that day. He felt cleansed. Why? Because in that prayer there was a, I don't know what his sin was. Doesn't matter. God knew. He knew. And in that prayer he was confessing it. Say, so, well, he didn't say what it was in his heart. I certainly did. As he approached God and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew what he was talking about. He knew what sin specifically he was addressing. So again, here in Psalm 51, David, he offers this advice to the children of God. In, in the darkest moments of your life, just remember that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God will not despise. When you feel so low and so broken, those are the moments that you're to draw near to him. I promise you, he will respond before we look at the next verse, and I know time is quickly abating, but in Second Chronicles chapter 33, I want to look at a case of an individual who, he was poor in spirit, and he, he deserved what he got. His name is Manasseh. Manasseh is a very interesting king, and in fact, in Second Chronicles chapter, excuse me, in Second Kings 21, where you find this recorded in, in the book of Kings, You'll find a lot more detail about the wickedness of Manasseh, but you won't see about the forgiveness of Manasseh. In this um, recording of his life, there's less of his sin recorded. It's there enough, but there is the forgiveness that he experienced. So Manasseh is the son of Hezekiah. To give a little background, Hezekiah had been a great king. Now, all kings were raided against David. <laughs> they either acted as David or they fell short of David. He say, David, I mean, we just looked at David's sin, yes, but of all the kings that Israel ever had outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, David was always the ultimate. But anyway, Hezekiah has been king and he was king for many, many years. Hezekiah had come to the point in his life that Isaiah comes in and tells him that he needs to get his affairs in order because God was going to take his life. As Isaiah leaves the room, Hezekiah turns his face against the wall. And he begins to pour out his soul to God. Isaiah hadn't even got across the court of the king's palace. And God tells Isaiah to turn around and go back. God had already heard his prayer. Isaiah hadn't even left the king's house yet. And Isaiah is sent with a different message. Isaiah comes back in, he says, God has said, I have seen thy tears. I have heard thy prayer. He goes on to let him know that his sins had been forgiven. And to his days, 
had been added 15 years. So Hezekiah, when hearing about his impending death, cried out to God, and God in heaven did not despise the prayer of the destitute. God regarded the prayer of the destitute. Here this man is king over Israel, over Judah. You would think, well, I mean, how could he be destitute? Well, in that moment, that man was destitute. He was about to be destitute of life. And this man, when it came down to it, when, uh, when he boiled it all down, it didn't matter whether he was king or whether he was a servant to the king. When he breathed out his last, yes, his name would be recorded in the chronicles that he had been a king over Israel, but he'd be just as dead. And so here in that moment, he is reduced back to the fact that he's no more than any other man upon this earth. And so here he is, a destitute man, a man who recognizes his days are short upon the earth. And for whatever reason, God decided in that moment when he heard the prayer of Hezekiah to add to his days 15 years. Now here comes Manasseh, his son. You would think that the story of God's mercy on Hezekiah's father would have moved Manasseh to be a good king. He was not. The Bible lets us know that Manasseh, he, he raised up the high places and the groves and built the altars that his father had torn down. He, he did so wickedly it says, the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Second Chronicles 33, verse 10. As you go back and read in Second uh, Kings 21, you're going to find that this man served Baal. He caused his sons to pass through the fire. That means they were offered to Moloch. They were offered up as burnt offerings, live burnt offerings. This is where Manasseh had gotten one king removed from Hezekiah and already they're back to the murder of infant children and the king is leading the people in it. And so God is fed up. And so here's what God does. God sends him to Babylon. Notice verse 11, it says, Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. And it says, And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. I mean, imagine how bad was it? I mean, he's basically a guilty of abortion. He's guilty of murder. He's guilty of idolatry. He's guilty of... Uh, serving false gods. I mean, everything you can almost imagine, this man is guilty of it, so much so that God is so enraged at this man that God allows him to be carried away. He's bound in chains and fetters and carried away finally to Babylon. And as he's there in Babylon, much like David, when David was confronted with his wrong, we find Manasseh was too. Manasseh did not uh, stiffen his neck against God though. You know, when Pharaoh... <laughs> When God would speak to Pharaoh in judgment, what would Pharaoh do? He would harden his heart. He would just, his resolve against God would become even stronger. That's how the wicked are. You know, in Acts chapter 4, I think it is, 3 or 4, when the apostles preached the gospel, those that were assembled, it says, it cut them to the heart. Acts 2, men were pricked in the heart 
That means their heart could be touched. Notice they were pricked in the heart. It had impact in the heart. The gospel to the wicked, it cut them to the heart. What does that mean? It got to the heart and it went no further. It hit a stony heart. It offended them, but it didn't move them anyway. That was Pharaoh. Pharaoh, when he did wickedly against God and God would bring judgment, as you know, nine times and finally the tenth, uh, every time that God would bring a judgment against Pharaoh, his heart would be hardened against God and against the people of God. But here's Manasseh, a man that as you read about his life in First Kings, excuse me, uh, in Second Kings 21, you would think that man has got to be burning in hell forever. We sing a song beneath um, the sacred throne of God. I saw a river rise. And in that song, it talks about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ being able to take care of Mary's or Manasseh's stains or sins more vile than they. I love that hymn because my sins, have I ever committed murder? No. Have I committed adultery? No. Have I a lot of, no, but it doesn't matter. I've done one thing wrong, and that's enough to banish me forever to the fires of hell. I mean, I've not kept the law of God. And my life isn't over yet. Some of the sins I just mentioned that I haven't done, I may yet do. I hope to God I don't. But it could happen. And so I'm thankful that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is able to take care of a Mary's. It's talking about that wretched woman that had been a harlot. Or Manasseh stains or sins more vile than they. Well, here's Manasseh. He's in a prison in Babylon. And he belongs there. But it says, when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Notice that. He humbled himself greatly. And notice what it goes on to say. And prayed unto him. He prays to God. And he, meaning God, was entreated of him, meaning Manasseh. So Manasseh is afflicted. He humbles himself, not just a little bit, but greatly uh, before, excuse me, uh, the God of his fathers and prayed on him and he was entreated of him. God heard his prayer and God was moved. That's what the word entreated means. Invited near and brought close. So God, when he hears the prayer of Manasseh, this man who's been so vile, who has put children to death, that has raised up altars to Baal, that have uh, planted the groves, uh, that have done uh, vile and wretched things in the nation and caused others to do the same. God hears his prayer. And God is entreated by him. Talk about the power of humility. We, when we think of strength, a lot of times we think of anything but humility. <laughs> But one of the most powerful things there is in this world is a child of God who is humble before the Lord. James said, if we will humble ourselves under the, before the Lord, he will lift us up. Just humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he shall lift you up. He says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. So it says he prayed to him and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. <laughs> then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. So he goes from Babylon back to his throne. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This man literally obtained his kingdom 
by humbling himself, showing himself poor in spirit. And God restored him to his place. Now, the kingdom that you and I have is far greater than the kingdom that he was restored to. And this man was greatly blessed otherwise. But anyway, let's turn back to Matthew 5 for just a moment. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn. What kind of mourning is Jesus speaking of here? I believe he's speaking specifically mourning over our sin. Now that's not to say that he won't comfort you in the other types of grief that you experience. He does. But see, the what Jesus is doing here in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's letting them know that the law had been misapplied by many and had been abused. The law was looked at as only external, just man's activity. What could be seen on the outside. The Pharisees didn't really care about the heart. In fact, Jesus said, you draw a nigh with me with your lips. He says, but your hearts are far from me. Externally, they appeared fine. Jesus said in Matthew 23, outwardly, he says, you're whited sepulchers, like a white marble mausoleum. He says, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. So the law keepers in Jesus' day and in the Old Testament primarily were only concerned about the external. And as long as the external looked good, they didn't care about what was going on on the inside, in the heart of man, and in the mind of men. And Jesus is pointing out in the Sermon on the Mount that the kingdom of heaven was not going to uh, ignore the law of God. In fact, he would say later in the sermon, he said, think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. He said, I didn't come to destroy them. He says, I came to fulfill them. And we should keep in mind that the moral law of God that was spoken in the Old Testament, Old Testament is still in effect today. Now, the curse of the law has been filled by the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilled by the, the dictates of the law Jesus has taken care of. But that doesn't mean that Jesus now all of a sudden says, well, go ahead and live any ungodly way that you want to. The moral dictates of the law of God have always been the same. They were that way before the law was given to Moses, through the time of Moses, and in the life of Jesus, and today. The moral nature of God has never changed. It's always been the same. So sometimes when we think about being in the New Testament era, you know, we don't have to be concerned about the law. We don't have to fulfill it anymore. Well, that's not what Jesus is here trying to tell them. But what he is pointing out, he says, y'all were just worried about what it looked like on the outside. He says, but in my kingdom, he says, I'm very much concerned about what's on the inside. Jesus would teach abundantly throughout his ministry that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Just watch a person. The things they do and say will reveal their heart before long. I've said before, and it's worth, very, it's worth repeating. We've had folks that have come and confessed their sin and want to be, and we know their history. And, and sometimes we may want to be hesitant and say, well, no, let's, I still hold to the thought. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Only they and the Lord know. But if they're not genuine, just give it a little time. It'll be revealed. It'll open up and we shall see. Hopefully they're being genuine. But if not, just wait a little while because out of the abundance of the heart, 
the mouth speaketh. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. So here when he says in the fifth verse, he says, excuse me, the fourth verse, blessed are they that mourn. I believe, again, he's talking about specifically mourning over sin. The Pharisees, they would... If you read throughout the New Testament, Jesus would not mock them, but he would condemn them because they would, you know, mar their faces. They would basically just paint on tears. In other words, they would put on a facade of mourning. But there was no mourning in their heart. And Jesus knows the difference when we're truly mourning or when we're just trying to make others think that we are. He knows the difference. So he says, blessed are they that mourn. Now again, Jesus cares about all your grief. He's moved by all your concerns. But here specifically, I do believe he's speaking specifically about mourning over the sins we commit. Look in Luke chapter 7 for just a moment. He says, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn over what they do wrong, he says, they shall. That shall, understand, is just as strong as Matthew one twenty one. What does Matthew one twenty one say? Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I thank God Matthew one twenty one is there. I'm also glad Matthew 5 verse 4 is there. <laughs> that when you and I mourn for our sins, we shall be comforted. In Luke, the seventh chapter, verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. Talk about somebody who's mourning about sin. If you want to know the background about this woman, this alabaster box of ointment, it was a perfume. We can presume that she used this perfume prior to this occasion to seduce men to fornicate. She was a very ungodly woman. She's a sinner. This woman was vile. This was like the woman in the song, a Mary. In fact, might even be that very Mary. A Mary or Manassas sins or stains or sins more vile than they a, a lot of us when we consider uh, a harlot and and what she does for a living we think can it get any worse for that than that it can get worse than that but it can't get much worse than that um, but imagine i mean a woman who's turned to that and and we see that sometimes in our nation and, and hopefully are disgusted by that and so is the lord but never get to the point that you think that your sins are any less atrocious in the sight of God. But anyway, this woman, she comes at, of all places to meet Jesus. She comes to this Pharisee's house. I would have waited. I would have said, you know, supper will be over and he'll leave and I'll catch him privately and I'll talk to him then. But you know, when a person is mourning for their sin, when a person is truly grieved, it can't wait. It has to be dealt with. And that's where she's at. She didn't care who heard. She didn't care who saw. So of all places to go, she goes to the Pharisee. And he knew this woman. 
may have even sinned with this woman. Don't know that, but it's possible. He knew about her, though. So it says that she stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And notice verse 39. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself. He's not saying this out loud. And then remember what I just said about Matthew 5? Jesus is letting his kingdom know he's looking at what's going on inside our hearts and minds. And he knows what Simon is thinking. Hear this man, it says, when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, if he really was who he says he is, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Jesus knew she was a sinner. Simon didn't teach Jesus nothing. But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus knows how to get right to our hearts. <laughs> Jesus answered, said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Master, say on. Now, it's interesting that the Pharisee even has invited Jesus to his house to start with. I mean, uh, I don't know what he's trying to do here. Is he trying to impress Jesus? I don't know. But anyway, now this woman comes in, kind of steals the show. And this man is perplexed and, and really offended that Jesus can't be who he said he was. Otherwise, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. He's going to be soiled by her. Understand me. When Jesus came into this world and he put his hands on sinners, that sin did not transfer to him. He was not soiled uh, by this world. Uh, no matter the depth of the depravity that the Lord Jesus Christ encountered, it did not sully him in one way. And I don't care how deep your sin goes. I don't care how bad it appears. You can always trust that you can bring it to the Son of God and understand that His blood was shed for the vilest of sins. And there's nothing so atrocious in your life that if you come before Him with a broken and a contrite heart, confessing that to Him, that He's not able to forgive it. There's nothing you've ever done or said or thought that the Lord Jesus Christ, number one, doesn't already know about and doesn't have the power to forgive. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, it says that He has saved us to the uttermost who come to God by Him. As Sonny Powell used to say, he said He took us from the guttermost to the uttermost. And thank God that's the reality. But anyway, this man, he's got his attitude in the wrong place. So he says, I have somewhat to say to you, Simon. And Simon's very intrigued. Master, say on. If he'd have been wise, he'd have said, well, let's end supper and you go on home, Jesus. That's not what he does. He says, Master, say on. He's intrigued. He wants to know. He says, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors, and one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? If you owed 50 bucks and I owed $500 and neither of us had a dime, and whoever we owe just said, you know what, it's forgiven. Who's going to love more? Obviously the one who's forgiven the most. And Simon answered and said, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said, you're judged rightly. That's correct. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, seest thou this woman? Simon sees her. He's offended by her. 
He said, I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her hair. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in had not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou dost not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, Jesus is not sweeping her sins under the rug, ignoring who she's been, ignoring what it is that she has done. None of that's going on. He says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And he said finally to the woman in the last verse, he says, thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. What's happened here? This woman was mourning. This woman was in deep grief over the things that she had done. May have even done it that very day. We don't know, but she brings in the only thing that she has. Now that was a costly ointment that would have carried her on in her livelihood. But instead, that's all she had. So what does she do? She brings it and anoints Jesus. She took and did. She had done what she could. That's all she could do. But she did what she could do. And so she did the best she could. And her tears were so much, they were sufficient enough to wash the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you didn't wash my feet. Didn't even send a servant to do so. He says, but here she is. Uh, doing, he says, you didn't give me a kiss. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. He said, um, you didn't anoint my head. <laughs> she hadn't ceased to anoint my feet with oil. This woman, notice where her attention is. Her attention is not upon the crown on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that song, Down at the Feet of Jesus. Uh, that's one of the best places the child of God can ever go is to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's times that you and I need to go to Calvary and bow at the feet of the Lord Jesus as He hangs there uh, dying, uh, being a curse uh, for us because uh, it's written, Curses everyone that hangeth upon a tree. And there's times that you and I need to see Him exalted, uh, seated firmly in His throne uh, with His Father and we need to approach His feet there in the glory of His kingdom and confess His greatness and His power, His dignity and the supremacy of His reign. The best place you can go in all the places that there exist is to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look how he's moved. He says, Simon, you didn't kiss me. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head. And all this woman has done is put her whole attention at my feet. She loved much. And so she was forgiven. He says, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. So again, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have nothing spiritual to offer to God, but are born of the Spirit of God, who understand that apart from Him, we have absolutely nothing that can appeal to God or appease Him. He says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, those who are broken over the sins that we have committed, for they shall be comforted. Do you think that woman went away without comfort that night? I guarantee you that woman left that house greatly comforted by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that thy sins are forgiven, go in peace. That's what I need to hear when I have sinned. 
when I confess it, I need to hear the Savior say to me, you're forgiven, go in peace. Because really that's what is, that's what's troubled when sin enters the picture. The peace that I have with the Lord that's been disturbed when I sin. And so what do I need? I need his forgiveness so that peace can be restored and I can go in peace. So long as I'm continuing in that, there's going to be a part of my soul that will never be at rest. It will never be at peace as long as I'm unwilling to confess to the Lord Jesus Christ what I've done wrong. But thank God that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May God bless you today.